Good morning. Go ahead and turn in the in your Bible to the book of Ezra, or flip, or tap, however it is you get there on your device or medium. So if you are um, if you haven't been with us much, you uh, might not know the course we're going to take here. We're going to knock out a whole book at once. That's not always the way we go about it. Um, but what we've been doing is marching through the Old Testament. Uh, trying to give uh, an accounting, of a big picture overview of what the Old Testament looks like. So we started this about a year ago, and uh, and we're getting towards the end. So we are this uh, week in the book of Ezra. So if you've got your Bibles open to the book of Ezra, then you're ready to go. Let me open us, though, and ask for uh, the Lord to help. Let's pray. Father, it's a treat to return already to you in prayer. This is an awesome task to open up our Bibles together. It's an awesome task as a preacher to open up your word and and deliver to your people. So, Father, I pray that you would work. I thank you, God, that through this book, you clearly show you are a God who helps. You are an amazingly strong God, you know all things and there is nothing you cannot do. Father, thank you for that. Lord, thank you that you listen to the prayers of your people. Thank you, God, that you are kind enough to purify your your people. Lord, I pray this morning that your word would go forth. I pray that your spirit would use it in the hearts of those who hear. Lord, I pray that it would not merely be words that are heard, but it would go all the way to the heart, and you, Father, by your Spirit, would accomplish your purpose. So, Father, we we have big hopes as we hear your word again together this morning, and we pray that you will accomplish big things as you see fit for your kingdom's sake. We ask this to you, Father, through Christ our Lord, our Messiah, our hope, our brother, our everything. And now, Lord, trust that you will apply these things by your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, the uh, book of Ezra, um, uh, the word Ezra in Hebrew, you probably already guessed it, means God helps. Um, And uh, I sat around and thought about the title of the message for a while and decided I'd call it God Helps. Um, So I I didn't want to go to get too creative. Interesting. You won't be surprised to find out that God helps is a very good summary of the book of Ezra. Um, that seems to be exactly what is happening. So before we dive in, we do need to set up uh, the historical landscape. Before we do that, let me give you one major takeaway from the book of Ezra together. God helps His covenant people by making them His covenant people. Now notice this is a little bit different than what you've probably heard when you've heard someone say, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's a very common saying, just not to Scripture. Um, what the Scriptures would have us leave with is God helps His covenant people by making them into His covenant people. That's the chief way God will help you. He'll make you into one of His covenant people. Alright, so... Big picture. Let's talk about the historical landscape. It's about we're about twenty five hundred years removed from when this happened, so it's helpful to get an idea of 
How, when did this happen? So multiple times now we've said, let's start by looking at Jesus of Nazareth. So if you look at Jesus of Nazareth, that's helpful because uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the person Jesus of Nazareth, when he was born, is situated exactly halfway between, roughly, halfway between where we are today and where Abraham was. So on one side you would have Abraham and on the other side you would have us. Then, about the midpoint and between where Jesus is born and when Abraham lives, you get this moment in the history of Israel where they get their greatest king, uh, their second king, King David. So King David is somewhere halfway between Abraham and Jesus. Well, shortly after David dies, the nation of uh, Israel divides. This happens in 931. We get the nation divided with the north Israel, sometimes called Samaria, uh, and then the south uh, Judah, sometimes referred to by the capital Jerusalem. So that happens in 931. Well, it doesn't take long, but the people continue to stray from God. And after warning after warning, in uh, 722 B.C., the Israelites are taken captive by the Assyrians. That's the next major step. 931, they're divided. 722, the Assyrians take over. Now, around that time, uh, you get a guy by the name of Isaiah who is writing. We've already looked at Isaiah. He writes a little bit before and a little bit after the time that the Israelites would have been taken over by Assyria. He's given warnings to the Israelites, but he's given even more warnings to Judah saying, watch what happens to the sister nation. Don't do the same thing. Well, amazingly, astonishingly, even being able to watch exactly what happened to Israel, the uh, nation of Judah stubbornly refuses to obey God. And they are then taken in 586, the, the temple is destroyed, and Judah is led into captivity now by the Babylonians. And right around the time of Judah's, or Judah's being taken captive, the temple falling, we get the ministry of a guy by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's ministry actually culminates, finalizes in the same year that the temple is sacked. So we've got Isaiah, and now we have Jeremiah. Well, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is situated about 50 years or so uh, after uh, all of this goes down. So we're looking about 50 years on the other side. I think it's helpful for you to keep in mind the empires in play. And you're going to see why that matters here in a moment. So, first of all, we've already talked about there was the Assyrian Empire... So the Assyrian Empire comes up first. They rise to power right before Israel falls. Then they are defeated by the Persians. The Persians, I'm sorry, by the Babylonians. The Babylonians then rise to power. And the Babylonians are then later uh, defeated uh, after 586. They are defeated by the Persians. So you got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. Okay, um, now I speak of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah together because they actually were originally one book. But later we divided them. Just like later we divided Luke-Acts, we later divided Ezra and Nehemiah. But they are technically one book and they are divided into three sections. 
Ezra uh, has two of the sections, and Nehemiah has uh, one of the sections. Section 1 is Ezra 1 through 6. That's chapters 1 through 6, and that's when Zerubbabel will return to the land. Then, chapter 7 through 10 of Ezra is when Ezra will return to the land. And then the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah returning to build the wall. Zerubbabel returns to build the temple. Ezra returns to bring reform. And then finally, the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah returning to build the wall. So big picture. 586, the temple is sacked. And that is the resounding sound of defeat, the worst moment in the Old Testament short of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 was 586 when the temple fell. The people were devastated. They didn't know it was going to happen. And now we are at a point when they're actually able to return to the land. And that's what we will look at together now. Alright. I think that's enough for us to understand uh, uh, Ezra 1.1. Now if you think this guy just likes nice charts and he likes to uh, talk about dates and all those things. I hope I'm going to prove myself right that you can't understand Ezra 1 1 without some background on those things. All right. So, Ezra 1 1. I do like charts, by the way. I do like charts. I'm just going to admit that. Mark, you'd have been surprised by that, but I like charts. All right. Um, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made him a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. All right, I'm going to read it one more time so you can follow. Uh, listen carefully. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, probably all caps in your Bible, the word Lord there, by the mouth of Jeremiah, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, that's Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. It's a three-point sermon. Point number one is that God helps by keeping his promises. God helps by keeping His promises. I put that wrong there. That's actually point one and two together, but that's my fault. So point one is God helps by keeping His promises. Okay, this verse we just read, it may not seem this way on the surface. I am telling you, it is unbelievable. It is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary verse. Why? First, notice the actor and notice the one acted upon. Who is the actor? God is the actor. Who is the one who's acted upon? The most powerful man in the world at the time, the king of Persia. The Lord, that's Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God elicits the help of the most powerful man on earth, a pagan king. And the way this verse reads, God elicits it like a master calls a servant to go do his beckoning. It's unbelievable. 
It's extraordinary. And yet that's small compared to how audacious it continues. Notice not only the actor and the one being acted upon. So it's a major point. The one acted upon is the strongest man alive at the time. He was acted upon. Notice the means by which God acts. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And it makes sure it repeats here. King of Persia. The most powerful man. So how does God act? He acts by moving Cyrus. Or put more explicitly, God acts by making Cyrus want what God wants Cyrus to want. He moves them. So it's him. It's not that big of a deal. I'm moved by music. I'm moved by movies. Really convincing speeches. I get moved. So he got moved. Yeah, yeah. But here's the difference. When you're moved by music, or by a movie, or convincing speech, realize it is a lot of work, that movie, that music, that, that speech. It's a lot of work that has to go into moving you. How does God move Cyrus? He just moves them. He immediately, no mediation whatsoever, moves them. It's an amazing point. The God of the universe, the Bible, is clearly claiming, is sovereign. He's sovereign over even the wills and the desires of men. He can move man as He wills. Astounding. Now notice why He moves. Why does God do what He does? What is the reason behind it? That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's why. God said, I have a word that was given to Jeremiah. It was my word. It has no choice but to come about. I'll bring it about. How does this happen? What is this word? Jeremiah chapter 25. Remember, this is written... Uh, Jeremiah is finished and done 50 years before we ever even get here. At least 50 years. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This is before any of this happens. Then after 70 years are completed. God is speaking here. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Before the Israelites ever endure the worst moment of their existence, God says, here's what I'm going to do, and here's how long it's going to last. It's going to last 70 years, and then I'm going to bring it down on the Babylonians. And what does God do? He does exactly that. In fact, God is so jealous to make sure that He gets full credit for it. That the book of Daniel records this. And Pastor Chad walked us through that amazing moment. You've heard the saying, couldn't they see the handwriting on the wall? Well, it comes from Daniel chapter 5. It comes when the king of Babylon at the time, Belshazzar, looks up from a drunken stupor at a party and sees a hand writing on the wall. 
Long story short, he calls Daniel and says, what is this about? Daniel reads it and says, well, let me translate it for you. It says, weighed, measured, divided, you're finished. And that night, now imagine this, he was partying. Somebody walks in and says it's finished. He breathed his last that night and the Persians walked in. God says, just like it's written on this wall, you're finished. Just like Jeremiah wrote it before these people ever came into your land, you're finished. Seventy years were decreed. Seventy years it would be. But that's not all that God promised uh, to Jeremiah. Look with me at chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. Astounding. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, okay, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. And I'm going to bring you back to this place. Before He ever wipes them out, God says, after 70 years, I'm coming to get you and I'm going to bring you back to this place. He's speaking of Jerusalem. Well, how in the world are you going to pull that off? The nation that took them is defeated. How in the world is this new nation going to care at all to get the people back to the land? Ezra chapter 1 says, And God stirred the heart of Cyrus. Yahweh said, It's time. Verse 2 of Ezra 1, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, He's so relentless to say, this is not a Hebrew. He's a king of Persia. Listen to what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He's charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What? Yeah. Pagan king says... I got to go do this for God because He's told me to do it. Now that is unbelievable. But folks, hold on to your seats. It gets much, much eerier. Recall that Isaiah wrote before Jeremiah. Jeremiah predicted the fall. Isaiah wrote about 200 years prior to Ezra. So 200 years, about 100 years prior to Jeremiah. So this is before the Babylonians were in power and much before the time Persia was in power. Yeah, I've got a graph of there. If you look at where Isaiah ends, there's a 200-year gap between that and the yellow dot. If I have this right, Isaiah wrote during the time of the current king Cyrus's he, Isaiah was writing, if Cyrus is here, you have to go to Cyrus's daddy, his granddaddy, his great-granddaddy, his great-granddaddy, and his great-great-great-granddaddy. Five generations removed. He's right. I think that's right. If I'm off by great-granddaddy, don't hold me to it. I think the point will still stand. Look with me at Isaiah 44 and 45. Unbelievable. Thus says the Lord, 
This is Isaiah 44, verse 24. If you can't tap that quick, turn that quick, just look up. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Love it. God always says, I formed you. I did it. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Verse 28. Listen. Who says of Cyrus? Who? Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd. I shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus isn't coming for five generations. Maybe it's just a slip up. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to His anointing, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, to subdue nations before Him. I'll go before you and I'll level the exalted places, verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob, in Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I name you. Though you do not know me. What a claim of this God. You haven't even been thought of and your name is secure because I named you 200 years before you would breathe a breath. I made you mine. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you. Though you do not know me. Why? That my people may know from the rising of the sun. Verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness and make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Cyrus had no choice but to be stirred because the God of heaven stirred him five generations before he was born. Now, I tried in my finite mind to get an example that was anything like this. This isn't great, but it works. Well, it's going to work. Imagine, in the year 1765, you get a slave in Virginia. This is before Revolutionary War. Imagine he writes a document that says, I want to write to my fellow African American brothers and sisters that 200 years from now, in a country that is not yet there, that there's coming a president in an office that is not yet there who will give you equal rights. Now he names exactly 200 years. Give you equal rights is all the white citizens. That would be an unbelievable document if it existed. But it would have to go a lot further. It would have to say, and by, his, by the way, his name will be Lyndon Johnson. And can you imagine if anyone, no one would give it any credibility if it went so far to say, this slave went so far to write and say, and I'll be the one orchestrating all of this. It would be a marvel of marvels. Brothers and sisters, 
in your hands. You hold the marvel of marvels. It is the Word of God. It is the either the biggest hoax of human history. Or it is what it claims to be. It is the Word of God. God helps. Not because we are great. Not because we do things perfect. But because He keeps His promises. God helps. Well, God uses Cyrus to do exactly what He promises. He stirs the heart of Cyrus. Maybe even more amazing if you know the history of Israel. He actually stirs the hearts of the Israelites. In chapter 1, verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites. It just occurred to me that... Um, I compared Cyrus to Lyndon Johnson. That's interesting. Alright, anyway, um, verse 5, we'll go back to it. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to rebuild the house that was in Jerusalem. Because one important detail there in verse 7, as they're now moving on back, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Verse 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out. So remember, when king, of, king Nebuchadnezzar came and sacked the temple, he robbed the temple of its gold and its vessels, and he took it with them north up to, uh, to Babylon. Now, that's interesting because where did that gold come from? Do you remember? It came from Egypt. And now you have the Persian king giving it back. Why is that interesting? I think it's interesting because God is careful throughout the Old Testament narrative. At times you're like, here we get this little story about the vessels of the temple again. Like, what's the deal? Right? Well, there's a deal there. The deal is this. God is careful to make it known that He will build His temple from the plunder of His enemies. Let me say it again. This will matter later. God will build His temple from the plunder of His enemies. Yet one more time, His enemies' hands handle the gold of the temple. Alright, God helps by keeping His promises and He helps by drawing His people to prayer. God helps by His promises and by our prayers. So, if the Israelites knew that in 70 years, this deal is up, then what do you do? Do you just chill? I mean, think about it. You're in Babylon. It's already written that in 70 years, this thing is going to end. So what do you do? You just enjoy your time and say, we're going home in 70 years? Well, some did that, but not the faithful ones. I think it's very interesting. Think of Daniel. He's there. He knows Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, like the back of his hand, he knows those books. How does, Jer how does Daniel deal with what Jeremiah said that in 70 years this thing is up? Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of uh, Darius or Darius, the son of uh, As Asuerus, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, 
I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What's Daniel saying? I read it. I know i got 70 years. Verse 3. I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. Jump down to verse 17. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of Your servant and to His pleas for mercy. And for Your own sake, O Lord, make Your face to shine upon Your sanctuary, that is the temple, which is desolate. God had already said He's going to rebuild it. And yet, God's people show their trust and their reliance on God by praying. In Ezra, when Ezra in chapter 8 is about to lead out the people to take them back to the land, we, we get an, an, an interesting uh, account. He's very nervous. This is a very difficult trip. There, the, the chance of getting robbed on the way, it's not like if, it's usually more like when you get robbed. That's just how it went. Listen to how Ezra, a priest, not a warrior, prepares for that trip. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river uh, Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Listen to verse twenty-two. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath against all who forsake Him. So we fasted and implored our God for this. And He listened to our entreaty. What a statement. I cannot go to the king and ask for a bunch of protection. Not when I've told him that God will take care of us. What do I do? I fast and ask God to take care. So what if someone says, okay, but... So if Daniel doesn't pray, is God not going to act? Is he, is he not going to remember His promise of 70 years? And Ezra, if they don't pray, do they just not have a safe trip back? I mean, Tim, how, how does that work? I think the answer is, you're right. If Daniel doesn't pray, he's not acting. And if Ezra doesn't pray, then there's not a safe trip back. And you say, well, wait a second. That, 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 that doesn't seem right. Well, be careful. Don't use flat-footed, man-centered logic. The solid takeaway is this. When God gets ready to act, His people Pray. Let me say it again. When God gets ready to act, His people pray. How can I say that God would not have acted out 
bringing him back after 70 years had Daniel not prayed because it wasn't going to happen. When God promised they would come back in 70 years, He secured the prayer of Daniel. And when God made the choice to get Ezra back to the land, He secured the prayer of Ezra. Prayer is the pre-op for every major procedure in the kingdom of God. I said that again. Prayer is the pre-op for every major procedure in the kingdom of God. This is why our Lord, when God acts in the most incredible way He'll ever act in human history, where do you find our Lord the night before? Praying. When those people saw sweat of blood, you could have known at that moment something big is going down. When God moves in the hearts of His people to pray, He is about to act. This book, this week, has examined my prayer life. And I confess, it has found it wanting. I don't pray enough as a believer. I don't pray enough as a pastor. I don't pray enough as a husband. I don't pray enough as a father. I'm asking that God would make me a man of prayer. Why? Because I believe it is a sign that God will act. Friend, what about your life? Take just this week. How much time did you spend entreating God? How much time did you spend God asking to accomplish the work of His kingdom? Not just for your needs and your family's needs, but how much time did you ask God to work? That was the prayer of Daniel. Work. I think we can grow in this area as a church. I'm thankful that we are a praying church. I'm very thankful that our senior pastor has a heart that we be even more of a praying church. This is one of the visions behind our Sunday night gathering together once a month. We want to gather together, pray that God would act, believe that He will act, call out to Him His promises, and believe He will move. And in Ezra, Move, God does. God helps. He answers their prayers and He fulfills His promises by rebuilding the temple. So the rest of chapter 1, it's the accounting of God getting all the things ready. Including a leader by the name of Zerubbabel, no small detail here, who is an ancestor of David to lead the effort. So now you got an ancestor of David leading a bunch of people back to Jerusalem. That's a good sign. Chapter 2 is a census of all the people that will be involved. Chapter 3 gives us the accounting of the temple foundation being set to build. Chapter 4 and 5 represent the people all excited, now facing opposition. The folks they face opposition with will later be known as the Samaritans. So if you're ever reading the Gospels and you're like, man... Why is there all this animosity towards the Samaritans? Well, it's because of what they did, namely in Ezra 4 and 5. Analogy. Imagine for some reason you get kicked out of your home and you come back and find your neighbor living in your house. And not only that, he's locked the doors. And he's doing his best to get his name put on the title. Things between you and him, they're going to be different, right? Things between the Samaritans and Jews were always, say, different. That's what happens in chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 6... 
God works through yet another king of Persia to have the building project finally completed. And we see that uh, example, that in Ezra 6, uh, verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of King Assyria to them so that He aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, this is interesting language. You're reading there and you go, and He made them joyful in heart because of all that had happened. And He turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Now, wait a second. I thought Assyria was the one who originally took them Exile. I thought it was Persia now. Well, you're right. The text isn't wrong. The text is saying exactly what it wants to say. I am using these, this king, this pagan king, to rebuild the temple just like I used the very first king to start this thing off. God is in control. God helped. He helps by keeping His promise. He helps by our prayers. And He helps... By purifying our hearts. By purifying our hearts. Close to 60 years pass between chapter 6 and chapter 7. God raises up Ezra, who's a priest, who's very familiar with the Word of God. And again, he stirs the heart of yet another Persian king to fund a project of sending the Word of God back to Jerusalem, to the people of God. And he basically says to Ezra, you got to go teach them the Word of God. you got a pagan king who is financing a project to get the Word of God to the people of God. Uh, Ezra 7.25 And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, he's talking about the Word of God, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, that is, Jerusalem. All such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Ezra returns in in chapter 7 and 8. He returns with a group of people to teach the law, to reform the people. And then chapter 9 opens like this. It is a very, very sad text. Chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race was mixed with people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. They gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Quick side note, and this is much quicker than I actually originally planned. I had a huge paragraph, but it didn't make it um, because of time. Let me tell you what this text is not about. 
This text has been used, unfortunately, in the past to argue that the Bible is the Bible for, forbids interracial marriage. That is not what this text is about. And I had this long section and I was going to explain that to you. But then I realized I was going to tell you more about what the text is not about than what the text is about. So suffice it to say, please, if you want to talk to me later, feel, for, feel free to talk to me. If you're curious as to how the Bible comes down on the issue, it does not forbid interracial marriage. If you're curious as to where I would stand on it, I think, and I think your pastoral team would stand, it's not just that we should tolerate it, I think we should encourage it. It's the only way to ever see our churches truly diverse. But anyway, we'll move on. Please talk to me more about this if you want. By the way, if interracial marriage is a problem, we got a problem pastorally because like two-thirds of your pastors technically are parts of interracial marriages. We should probably clear that up at some point if that bothers you. But anyway, um, just moving on. Um, So, hey, at least I got you awake. What is this text about? This text is about an incredibly weighty and sad irony. Now you may remember when we were walking through and we got to Solomon, that I made the point that when the temple was inaugurated, Solomon's temple, that I saw that as something like a second Eden moment. And I think the text tries uh, to present it that way, at least in Chronicles, it does. That is, what is the text trying to do? Well, you have the presence of God among His people in the temple. You have a good and a wise king. You have a unified nation. And you have the people thriving. And how long does it last? Not even before Solomon's dead. What was the main downfall of Solomon? Mixed with foreign wives. It is a deep, Sad irony that now you have the people of God brought back from judgment of God, just rebuilt the temple. And where do they find themselves? But guilty of the exact same sin. There's an interesting moment, I think one of the defining moments of the book of Ezra. Go back and read it. It's at the end of chapter 3. They've just laid the foundation of the temple. When the foundation is finished, the people are very joyful and they thank God for His steadfast love. But then we're given this, this interesting note. It said, yeah, but there were some of the older generation who had seen what the former temple looked like and they wept. And that chapter ends by saying... The, the shouts and the cries were so loud, but you could not distinguish the cries of joy and the cries of sorrow. I think this is very similar to what's going on in chapters 9 and 10. See, these people had seen, some of them had seen Solomon's temple. They look at this new temple and it's nothing to compare it to. Or moreover, they've read of Ezekiel's promised temple, and this looks nothing like what Ezekiel promised. Ezra had read of the promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that when God worked to bring back His people, to reform His people, He was going to give a new people with a new what? A new heart. And now Ezra sits in the ruins, literally in the ruins, and realizes 
This is a promise yet unfulfilled. So what's going on? Look, it is a key that the book of Ezra starts, since it's why we spend so much time on the beginning of this message, with one of the starkest statements on God's power and control in all of Scripture. It's as if Ezra 1.1 is saying loud and clear, before we ever get going, you need to know this, God can and will do what God wants to do when He wants to do it. It prepares you for the end of Ezra when you leave with an unfulfilled promise. Point, point is, promise unfulfilled, but not because God can't do what He wants to do. It's because He hasn't yet done what He wants to do. We give, we're given hints of this all over. We're given hints of the fulfillment when Zerubbabel, who carries literally in his body the genealogy of the Messiah when he returns to the land. We're given hints of this when Ezra the priest comes uh, to, to teach, but he can't secure the hearts of the people. We're, we're given hints of this because all of this points to Christ. Christ who will be born in the line of Zerubbabel, the line of David. They point to Christ who is the temple of God in all of its glory. They point to Christ who Himself will perfectly keep the law of God. As we close, remember how I said the text was careful to let us know that God continually uses the plunder of His enemies to build His temple? It matters. I think Ephesians chapter 2 is a strong statement of that. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 17. And He came and He preached peace to those who were far off. So then, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself, being the cornerstone. Verse 21. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Gospel is the amazing news that God will use the plunder of His enemies to build His temple. What is the New Testament church? We are the enemies of God. Every one of us, enemy of God. But because of what God has done in Christ, we now stand as plunder of the enemies of God being used to be made into a holy temple. We are being molded and hammered into testimonies of His grace. We represent the kingdom of God to the world. Friend, if you're here and you have not surrendered to King Jesus, would you realize that God will fulfill all that He has promised? He is going to do it. Every king, every president, every nation, 
every empire are merely actors for their appointed time on His stage in His script. I invite you, I implore you, surrender today. And for those of you who have surrendered to Christ already, I encourage you. I encourage you by the Word of God, believe that He helps. Believe that He fulfills His promises. And as such, be free to pray boldly. Be free to be purified as His child.